Thank you, Blair Quartet. I was reminded listening to you play why my uh, viola teacher in fourth grade suggested my music career should be done. Because <laughs> it didn't sound anything like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, she was concerned I was never going to finish like that either. So thank you so much. So thank you so much for being here. Well, church, today is the end of our Advent series. You're going, wait, Scott, our Advent series? It's January. It's almost the middle of January soon. Uh, you know, a big chunk of the world celebrated Christmas just last Friday. The Eastern Orthodox world celebrated Christmas this past Friday. But this really is the end of our Advent series. And I say that because I want to thank, in particular, Dr. Charles, Chuck Hunt, who last spring came together. Pastor Jeff said, let's, let's talk about Christmas way, way in advance. And Chuck, Chuck came with us and said, what if we unwrapped Christmas this year? And that led us into this Advent series. I'm grateful for Janine and for Matthew, for Annie and Chuck, all who preached in a variety of, of different settings. But, but I'm particularly thankful for our family ministries team. Those videos they did from week to week, faith, joy, love, and hope, they were remarkable. Church, I just want to tell you, you hear it many ways, but this church staff team that, that we have the privilege to, to learn from and to serve with, and I get the privilege of serving with, is a remarkably gifted group of godly men and women. And when we get to let them loose and bring all their creative talents to bear, I just think God's up there like elbowing Jesus and going, look at that, right there, look at that. Those are my kids, look at them. Um, and so for the, particularly for the family ministries team, thank you, you put so much into this Advent series and we are really, really grateful. Well, this is part two of our two-part epiphany series to end Advent, the gift and the givers. Pastor Matthew last week reminded us that epiphany is remembering the Magi coming to find Jesus in Palestine, making a two-year journey, one way, into an unknown place, a sacrificial journey focused on bringing gifts to an unknown person. Oftentimes we forget that. They left for an uncertain time in an unknown land to bring gifts to an unknown person in this unknown place that they spent two years trying to find. Did that sound as crazy to you last week as it did to me? <laughs> it brought it home again. That, that faith in large part is about risk. Appreciation. When we talk about risk to you, the Lake family, regarding your faithful and overwhelming financial response this past December, absolutely overwhelming. Those sacrificial gifts, while we face so much that's unknown, and we have been facing, and it's continuing into 2022, even today, as so many of us are worshiping at home due to the spike, exposures, etc., we face so much unknown. And as we await even our own unknown person, a senior pastor of God's calling, we continue to do so much of our ministry in unknown moments during this day. But as this year ended, just like those magi of long ago, you responded by stepping into that unknown, prompted by the Holy Spirit, believing there were things that needed to be done, and you said, I'm in. 
Can I just tell you from this seat over here how amazing that is? And I'll confess to you, I was on vacation last week and I was sitting somewhere uh, in a crowd and I was crying as I got the news about the generosity, the over-the-top generosity this December, potentially historic in this church's 125-year history. And all these people, yeah, thanks God. Thank you and thank God. And these people turned and looked at me as this guy who's quietly crying in the corner. And I think they just shrugged their shoulders and go, yeah, COVID. <laughs> COVID. It's the answer for everything, right? COVID. No, the answer to this was your sacrificial decision-making about what it is that you are stewarding for God. So for you who are online, for you who are at home, for you who are in this room, I just want to say from your church leadership, from your staff, from your ministry council, I just want to say thank you from the absolute bottom of our hearts as we continue to ask God, where would you lead us in this difficult, challenging day? Where would you have us go? I titled this message, From, Through, and For, a personal epiphany, and it's just that. It's rather intensely personal, so I hope you'll indulge me as I tell a very personal story in a little bit. But where you take this is between you and God. I guess every sermon is really where you want to take it, but it's between you and God. But like the Magi that Matthew spoke of last week, we're going to leave on a journey, and maybe today there will be an epiphany for you waiting at the other side of it. I, I, I don't know, but, but before that moment or the others that are to, to come in this message. I, I want to frame our time in God's word from a letter to believers in Rome. Now, now this letter, has, as, as anyone who's been following Jesus for any period of time knows, this particular letter to the Roman church has some of the, the most critical theologizing that the Apostle Paul would ever do. And really, preceding these 11 chapters, it's been full of rich, deep, theology, speaking of God's ongoing and future work among Israel, the blessing of the gospel among non-Jews. And, and when he gets to late in chapter 11, it's like something just happens and he can't take it anymore, the goodness of God, and he breaks out into song. I teased Pastor Beth today that I was going to have her dance at this point, um, spontaneously. He just, he just breaks out in song because that's really what we find in Romans 11, beginning in verse 33. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? Romans 11, 33 to 12, 2. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths are beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them for from him and through him and for him are all things to him be the glory forever amen so therefore i urge you brothers and sisters in view of god's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and pleasing to god this is your true and proper worship do not conform to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. You may be seated. So when we talk about gifts, giving and receiving, when we talk about 
On the church calendar, Epiphany, the, the, the remembrance of these magi that Pastor Matthew left us with last week, coming to give their gifts, there's a word that we use today that I think applies to that context pretty readily and pretty familiar if you've spent any time in church, and that word is stewardship. Stewardship's this really complicated word, though, isn't it? Can we just be honest? It's complicated everywhere in the church world in particular. And I think for us who live in the developed world, a place that's rich in material goods and fairly productive economic systems, the, the word stewardship, when spoken from a pulpit like this, at the very least can make us a little nervous. Maybe we start to sweat. Some of us instinctively put our hand on our wallet to make sure it's still there. <laughs> Pastor, you're going to have to go through me to get it. <laughs> I got to tell you, church, I love that we are talking about this after the December that we have had, because we were going to talk about this anyway, because Epiphany was about bringing your gifts and have them turned into something completely different and probably completely unimaginable, because when those magi arrived, they had no idea who they were giving these gifts to and what he would do. So I love we're talking about this now after this, this remarkable expression that you have made in December. So that way it doesn't feel like a guilt trip in any way or, or manipulative. We can gauge around stewardship from, I think, a higher plane, a, a, a different place and, and give it the robust consideration it deserves. Because the fact is, like, like as it was with the Magi, here's what happens when we have a gift the, that we give to God or anyone else, the gift physically and emotionally and spiritually brings the giver, right? You can't give a gift if you don't deliver the gift. The gift will always bring the giver. And once arrived, who knows what's going to happen next. So let's get started by defining stewardship. Merriam-Webster defines it this way as the conducting, supervising, or managing of something, especially the careful and responsible management of something entrusted to one's care. Do you notice the lack of the word money or finances in this definition? Because too often in the church world, that's where we go, right? When you hear the word stewardship, you go, I go to money, to finance. Stewardship in our Christian life, it's about living a life with the deepest understandings of the implications that we are not our own. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20a, do you not know that you are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Family, we are in fact managers of our lives, true, but it's God who's the owner. We may be the house the Holy Spirit resides in, but it's God who owns title to the property. And like the Magi traveling to an unknown place, gifts in hand, the days ahead of us personally and as a church, let's be honest, they are filled with many unknowns. But I am certain that as we renew our commitments to whole life, stewardship, whole church stewardship, 
His purposes for our lives and this church can be obediently, faithfully, and in the power of the Holy Spirit lived out for his glory. Of this, I have no doubt. There's a story told back in the 1700s. You might know the name John Wesley. He was the father of Methodism. His brother Charles wrote a lot of hymns. We still sing some of them. Wesley was a pastor, a missionary, evangelist, poet. Man rides up to him on a horse frantically in London one day, and he says, Mr. Wesley, Mr. Wesley, something terrible has happened. Your house has burned to the ground. Wesley took in this shocking news for a moment. It's reported he sat in silence for about a minute, and then he looked at the courier, this messenger, and he calmly replied, nope, not my house, but the Lord's house burnt down. You know what this means? One less responsibility for me. (laughs) Wow. Wesley understood this concept of Christian stewardship. All things belong to God. And they have just been temporarily entrusted to us. So as I said before, I think too often though in the Christian church world, we associate this word stewardship so exclusively with finances. And I'll just say right here and now that we pastor teachers have to bear our responsibility for doing that incomplete and sometimes manipulative teaching on the subject. We took a word that meant everything and we turned it into this thing too often. That was never God's intent. And in so doing, for many, we have created shackles where there should be freedom in this area, shame instead of joy, segmented lives instead of integrated ones, instead of the kind of stewardship relationship offered by God that goes back to the beginning of our story. Listen to Genesis 2, 8 and 9. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden. There he put the man he'd formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye, good for food. And let me skip down to verse 15. The Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it and to pay his taxes. Wait, wait. (laughs) To work it. And take care of it. Stewardship from the beginning was about this holistic life with God. It's a whole life proposition, caring, tending, in step with, responding to the creator. It's a life not driven by the fear of scarcity, but a life entrusted to God, accepting the mantle of being a responsible manager, embracing the promises of the trustworthy owner. Do you know, Almost 10% of the verses of scripture are given over to the subject and conversations around wealth in all its forms. That's about 3,000 verses. Interestingly, it's a virtual tithe by God, coincidentally, on this subject. And we know that God knew that we needed a lot of input on this subject of stewarding all that we are, all that we have and hold, that we would be managers instead of owners. I could give you a very long list of references and you guys could go over the top of those with many more. I'll let you just Google that on your own at home. Um, But I'm gonna sort of, if you'll trust me, bottom line the Old Testament teaching around God's people about what it is they were to steward. If you put it all together, 
They are stewarding their life and their witness, specifically for the nation of Israel, these instructions were, but for all of those called out as God's people who joined them in faithfulness to use all they have and all they are to be a witness to all the peoples of the earth. Probably most clearly captured in Genesis 12, one to three, I am blessing you to be a blessing to all the families of the earth was the covenant with Abram. And then the New Testament, if I were to bottom line stewardship, it remains that same call, absolutely, to be the gospel blessing to all peoples, maybe summed up best in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 to 20. But now it's focused on individual lives lived for the king in a way that's different and the gathered community of believers that are called the church to steward this movement going forward. Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians 4, 2 about his own stewarding of this gospel calling. And I think it's as true a bottom line for us as well. He said this, 1 Corinthians 4, 2, now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I got to tell you my deeper understanding of that particular reality of, of stewarding our whole life, and I mean all of our life, um, began really in many ways with my wife today, my wife, Nancy. She was not then. Um, she took me to school on this subject. And yes, Nancy, I didn't tell you I was going to tell this story because um, I couldn't take the shame or the, the look. Here's what happened. It was after church. We actually met at this very place in our college days, college young adult days. There's your warning or your blessing to the college young adults, folks. Um, and we had just come home from church and we were at my apartment and I had to get something before we were going to do something else. And so I remember it just like yesterday. I had opened a drawer and I'm digging in this drawer looking for I don't know what. And I hear Nancy behind me through the door of my, my room say something like, um, something about the offering that day. And she used the word tithe. And I got it. I stopped looking for a minute and I looked over my shoulder and I corrected her and I said, you mean offering? And she looked at me like this, knitted her eyebrows and said, no, Scott, I, I mean tithe. I immediately turned back to my drawer because now I really needed to look for this thing that was in here. And I said, so you're telling me, Gulp, you actually give like 10% of you know, your part-time job and I'm still looking for this thing. And it was one of those moments where you ever been somewhere where you know someone is staring a laser beam hole through your head? Now, our relationship was still pretty early at this phase. I could tell I, it was at risk. I knew that, that this answer was really, really important. I looked over my shoulder and I go, you didn't mean offering. You actually meant you're a dedicated tither. In that moment, I said, I think maybe you're the first person I've ever met who actually does that formal Old Testament 10% kind of thing. As I said, she took me to school. I thought in many ways, you know, I was a starving student at the time. Um, so I was doing okay with the holistic idea of stewardship. I embraced it. It's my whole life. It's my time and whatever passed for talents in those days, given away and serving with an eye on the kingdom and what God wanted to do on earth as it is in heaven. But God used Nancy to begin to realize that my definition of stewardship, my own default was not robust enough. Money, wealth, and finances I needed to work through. It was an area I was going to have to grow in. And friends, it's been a total roller coaster ride around giving for me. Don't hear anything different. Back then, I justified so many things in my giving life. Lord, I'm just a student. I come from a broken family. So I get like a special exemption on this, right? <laughs> 
Later versions of that same, uh, can we call that a prayer? Desperate prayer. Later versions of that a few years later was, Lord, I am newly married to Nancy. Love you. To Nancy. <laughs> and, 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 we're, and I'm starting a business and, and I don't have any financial fallback here. So, so I, I, I get like a special exemption on this, right? Deafening silence from eternity yet again. A few years later, it was, thank you, Lord, for securing my business, getting it started, but I'm about to be a father. And, and Nancy's now just starting her freelance illustration work. So um, when it comes to, you know, family's financial security, I know you care about that. Um, I get some special exemption on this, right? Gosh, you talk about slow learners. And that brings me to my epiphany moment a few years later. I know you're beginning to think about Scott. I thought there was an epiphany story coming. It's about a, a friend I met one day. I only saw him twice in my life. Ole Ashi is his name. Byron and Lisa Repco Borden are missionaries from Lake Avenue Church. They were sent uh, 30 some odd years ago uh, to be a church, do church planning, discipleship, and economic development amongst uh, some Maasai people along the Kenya-Tanzania border. Uh, this is a place where at the time, these were considered an unreached people. Let me put my missions pastor hat on just for a moment. An unreached people means the gospel has not yet been rooted in such a way amongst them that they can then see it reproduce among their own people without outside partnership. That was all of us in this room once upon a time. Someone came to our peoples that we might be reached with the gospel. Well, that's what Byron and Lisa were out there doing. It was their 10th year anniversary. Now, you have to understand where they lived was only 25 miles off the main highway, and it took eight hours to cross that 25 miles because what they defined as a road was really just a necklace of potholes, occasionally interrupted by a flat space. So it was really remote. It was not easy to get to. So, but it was their 10th anniversary. So they left home to go celebrate, I think, down at the coast at the time. Someone from the organization, a, a medical doctor, came up to do some clinic work while they were going to be gone for two or three weeks, whatever it was, and through an accident, they burned the Borden's house down. Happy anniversary, baby. Oliashi is a first-generation believer amongst this church plant. It was a very small church plant amongst this clan of Maasai. Oliashi was one of the first believers and be quickly, though illiterate, uneducated, older, suffering from poor health due to advanced asthma, became quickly one of the elders that God would use to grow that, that small faith community. Oliashi suffering from asthma, Byron said, hey, is there anything the church can do? And we said, we can help with asthma and we can help with the house. So a team from a church in Santa Barbara and down here at Lake, we, we sent about a dozen people over there to rebuild their house so they could continue in ministry without much of a break. Byron said, okay, can you bring this asthma medicine? We can't get it here. Can you bring it? Um, and I hope Oleashi lives long enough to receive it. So one day, about halfway through this time, which was over, as an aside, was over Thanksgiving. And if you've never celebrated Thanksgiving with Warthog, you don't know what you're missing. Um, we, we went out to the bush to deliver this medicine. And we, so we went to Oleashi's house. Now, uh, he lived in a, a village out in the bush in what's called a boma. A boma's basically a hut. It's about this high. I am not. Um, so you can slip into this, this space inside the boma. It was being shared with his two wives, his six kids, uh, three goats, a corral that should have had cows out front, and there were none. Uh, 
Inside this little, it was winter, so inside this hut, there was no air hole for the smoke to escape. So you're just eating smoke until you sit down low enough that you can get below the smoke line and kind of see all these things that were in there. It's a one-room hut. No cows in your corral means you have no bank account. For the Maasai literally believe all the cows in the world belong to them, and they love their cattle. Well, Ayashi, because of his health and the brokenness in his family, and financially had no cattle. Like a good host, he invites us to sit down and have some tea. And one of his wives begins to make us tea and she whispers, there's no sugar. So he goes to send one of his boys to get sugar. And under, under his bed, he reaches and pulls a shoebox out. Now this shoebox is the equivalent of the vault for a Maasai. Everything important goes in your shoebox. We have those two, we tend to call them houses. They manage all their important things in a box this big. Inside that box, I saw two, the equivalent of two pennies and their personal ID cards. That was all that was, that was in that box. Byron interrupts all of this, seeing the same thing I saw, and he says, oh, this stranger, this Mzungu from the West, he doesn't put sugar in his tea, so let's not buy some sugar. Now, those two pennies would have bought two tablespoons of sugar, but that was all the cash they had, okay? Not an unimportant detail. Byron graciously stepped in and really saved what would be awkward and instead put it on me. Of course, he told me that later. That was fine. So we had it. We sat drinking our tea. Now, this particular area of the Maasai, I'd, I'd been out there, I'd been in the Maasai land before, but there was something different. This Maasai hunted with bow and arrow, and I just thought that was interesting as an amateur cultural anthropologist. It was just different. The clans doing things life differently. So Byron said, hey, you know what? Maybe we're out in the bush. Maybe we can buy a bow and arrow if you think that's cool and want to bring it home and show your boys and all that kind of stuff. I'm like, well, that sounds great. He goes, well, why don't you put $30 in your pocket and when we deliver the medicine, we'll see if you know, we can scare something out while, while we're out there. So he tells Oliashi the story and Oliashi says, oh, I got this. And he says to one of the kids and they bring out this bow and they bring out the, this arrow. Now this bow looked like the first name Scott. It was, had a big hook to it that it shouldn't have had. And the arrows could like shoot around corners. They literally were like this. And so I'm looking and going, I'm a good guest. And I'm all, cool. Byron and Olayashi start just falling about the place with laughter. Masai love to laugh. They just fell about the, then the kids started laughing. Then the wives started laughing. I knew there was something going on here and I'm pretty sure it was about me. And so Byron goes, dude, look at that. That's a toy for kids. It's like training wheels on a bike. That's not a real bow and arrow. Come on, look at that. No one's going to get hurt or do any damage or hunting with that. So Olayashi then said something and one of his kids pulled out from under a bed. This, yeah, your mission's pastor, he brought show and tell today. So a, a real bow, same sinew as when I bought it. And, 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 and not only that, but a quiver, not just arrows, but, but a quiver. And, and filled with, there's about six arrows in here. And I looked at this and, and Byron said, well, I was thinking $20, but I think the price just probably went up. Um, let's make it, you brought 30? Yeah, let's, let's make it 30 because that'll, that'll be a, a fair price for this real set. So the kids, one of the boys comes up, about five years old, takes the arrows out because they aren't going to trust me to hold the arrows because they're all poison tipped um, and figured I didn't know the difference between real stuff and bad stuff. So they start cooking the poison off in the fire in, this, in the center of the house. Oleashi begins talking in a different tone Byron is not talking and he's not translating for me anymore. I'm just totally consumed looking at this artifact and this handiwork and the craftsmanship, et cetera, et cetera. And I finally pay a little more attention. I look up and I see Byron is crying, silently crying. 
I have no idea what's going on. It is not the smoke. We are below the smoke layer. I have no idea what's going on. Oliashi keeps talking very seriously. Stops. There's a break. Byron says, give me a minute. And he says, so Oliashi asked if I would tell you a story. Okay. So Oliashi says, when your house burned down, he told me when my house had burnt down, he made a vow to God that he would sell a calf to help pay for the rebuilding because we gave up so much to come to bring the gospel. God, who had given up so much, his son, to send the gospel, he had made a vow to God to somehow sell a cow, a calf, for $30, for $30. The building project had been going on for six weeks. He had these two pennies in his box. He had no idea how he would ever, ever see his vow completed. But he didn't doubt that God had heard his cry. And with Byron telling me that, Oleashi then reaches under his bed, pulls out his box with only two pennies in it and the ID paper, takes the $30 that I had just given him 10 minutes earlier, hands it to Byron and says, on this day, God has worked a miracle. It gets me to this day. This man with hungry kids, his two wives to feed, elder, young elder in terms of his experience with God, so I thought, was so much deeper with God than I had ever been. His trust in his father was so much greater than mine had ever been. He believed that God would honor his commitment and his vow. Someday I am looking forward to eternity when I get to hunt Oleashi down and thank him for on that day, he taught me one of the most important and greatest lessons of my life that we cannot outgive God. And I think he'll say, oh, okay, whatever. But the thing I remember about that day, Scott, is man, you took that little kid's bow and arrow and thought that was the real deal, man. That's what I remember about that day. And he will laugh and we will laugh together. An epiphany in common usage is a term that describes an awakening that takes place in a very deep interior place or a recognition of a truth that possibly has been suppressed and ignored. It becomes a revelation of a priority thing. It becomes a paradigm shift. Everything is different from that point forward. My epiphany story is about humanity being made for generosity Image in the creator's own standard of generosity, not mine. It's sacrificial, it's transformative, and yes, it is demanding. That day, I saw the most costly $30 donation in history be given. I got to see it with my own eyes. I saw the totality of the heart of, of this first-generation believer whose life could not have been more different from birth to death. And yes, he passed away a couple years after that. But whose faith practice became a transformational teaching from God to me. Church, I still have so far to go in this area of my life. I make no bones about it. 
whole life stewardship in my whatever passes for talent, whatever passes for treasure is still and will always be a challenge. I need oleashis in my life to keep challenging me. But 30 years later, I am still learning to trust more completely. But like a modern day Maasai Magi, Oleashi presented his best to Jesus in faithful obedience to his vow that he had made, never doubting God's provision then or in the future. Let me wrap up by being practical. Pulling out my pastoral license to meddle. So what does it take to reorganize our thinking around stewardship? What will it take? Or to continue reorganizing our thinking around it? You know, companies and organizations, we, we typically will, we will, and this is true, right? For wherever you've worked in your life, we'll organize around the ideas of roles and responsibilities. Who does what when? Well, here are some of the ways that might be helpful as we think and seek to be good stewards to think about this, the kind of way that Jesus affirmed in multiple parables about masters and servants, slaves, etc., stewards. Take a look on screen. Stewarding and the owner. For the owner, he's the true controller. It's his will that is paramount and authoritative. It's his trust that is delegated to the steward. He has understood expectations. He makes them clear. Mm, he will not always be present, but he will return. And the owner and their stewarding are empowered to reward and to punish. Now, for us as stewards, what does stewarding mean? It means mindful. We're not the owner, but we are accountable to the owner. That we pursue trustworthiness consistently, that we work diligently and well, that we invest wisely, and we understand there are both individual and group outcomes of our stewarding. And we are always prepared and preparing for the owner's return. The Romans passage, which calls us to align all things from, to, and for Christ in order to be transformed, is summarized on this slide. I think this is what scriptures throughout teach us regarding transformation in this particular area of our whole life stewardship. Take a look. It begins with our pride becoming gratitude. And we remember that everything we have now, including salvation, is a gift from God. Our envy transforms to contentment as we push back against comparison and we practice gratitude in all things. Our anxiety transforms into trust as we grow in confidence and acknowledge that in fact, God is our provider. And we increasingly leave indifference behind and it's transformed into caring as God transforms our heart and our motivations that we might increasingly align with his heart and motivations. That's what transformation of stewarding our lives can look like. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things to him be the glory forever. So 
Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies, your whole life, as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, every aspect of your whole life. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Stewarding our life as Christ's own is not merely a question of our eternal salvation, right? It's equally a question of our commitment to joining with him daily in a lifelong eternal collaboration. Demands all of us. It will demand your talents. It will demand your resources. It will demand your experiences. It will demand your voices. It will demand your investments. It will demand your vocations. It will demand your work time. And it will demand your and my free time. And yes, our material resources too, whether they are much or whether they are little. Where do you need to recommit to the generous stewardship of your life, church? Where or what have you been withholding from the owner? Where is your definition of stewardship not robust enough? Where have you confused who's the manager And who's the owner? Friends, if we want to see renewal, it begins with this renewed commitment to a full life stewardship of our time, of our talents, and of our treasures. It includes our relationships, our vocations, our care for our spiritual, social, and material environments we live in. And it rejects the myth of scarcity, even as Ole Ashi in my presence rejected the myth of scarcity and has marked me for life. It risks embracing the promises of God. And what better time to renew that personal and our corporate commitment than early in 2022? I'm going to give the last word to Pastor Randy Alcorn, a pastor from, from Oregon, who wrote this great, spiritually rooted and very practical book on the subject of stewardship. I highly recommend it. It's called Money, Possessions, and Eternity. Great small group as well as individual study book. I'm going to give him these last words. Someday, this upside down world will be turned right side up and nothing in all eternity will turn it back again. If we are wise We will spend our brief lives on earth, positioning ourselves for the turn. Pray with me.